Welcome to SpotCast, your single point of contact for service management and support insights brought to you by HDI, where service management and support professionals belong. I'm Roy Atkinson, your host for SpotCast. For Episode 6, our guest is Greg Gregory of Teams Rock. With more than 1,500 keynotes, breakout sessions, and training workshops under his belt, Greg Gregory is a team-building mastermind. His client list of over 400 companies, nonprofit associations, and government agencies includes New York Life Insurance, the Defense Logistics Agency, and the Club Managers Association of America, as well as over 300 of the Fortune 500 companies. Greg, HDI's annual research has identified relationships within the team as a key factor in employee satisfaction. So how do team leads and managers help foster those relationships? Roy, as team leaders and managers take on their jobs, part of that is about nurturing and developing employees. And it's not just the leader with employee one, employee two, but it's about nurturing and and basically building the team all the way through. So the relationships are one aspect of how that team has to come together. And a good leader is all about that. A good leader knows how to lead the people. The challenge is most leaders get their first jobs as a leader because they did the function, the task well, just not necessarily sure they know how to lead people. So relationships within the team are one aspect of leading individuals and leading the team itself. An awful lot of people in this industry, especially, uh, come up as analysts or agents and then are promoted into a manager slot because they did a great job. Absolutely. Um, I came out of the mortgage banking industry on the sales side, and it was the same thing for me. I knew how to do the job very well, but my first leadership job I failed at miserably because I didn't know how to lead others to do it. There's a saying in the industry that people don't leave jobs, they leave managers or they leave their leaders. What are some of the effects of uh, managers and leaders not knowing what to do? Let's let's attack this from two different directions here. Um, you're absolutely right. People leave because of relationships. Study after study from the Society of Human Resource Management shows that money's not always the number one factor, Uh, the tasks aren't. It's about the relationships people have within their teams. And so often that includes the relationship they have with their manager. And the number one thing that managers do is they breach trust time and time again. And in my workshops, I'm always talking about trust being the foundation within the team. It is so important as leaders that they build trust and then the two types of trust. Um, there is first, um, the most common type of trust is called predictive trust. Now, predictive trust is where if I say to Roy, this is what I'm looking for you to take care of by Friday at three o'clock, well, I have a certain level of trust that you will do that. And so let's go back and define trust. It's one in which confidence is placed according to Webster's Dictionary. The challenge is that most leaders fail to go forward and build vulnerability trust. And consequently, that happens more times than not today because so many people are coming up from so many different directions 
that it is quite possible for even an analyst at times to know more about something that a uh, than a leader might know, or somebody specifically on one particular topic or um, one particular area of the industry. And so what happens is leaders sometimes are too afraid to admit they don't know something. And when they do that and they get caught making something up, and I, I, I take that loosely, but it happens when they make something up in that direction then all of a sudden the level of trust is breached. And once that is breached, it's very, very difficult to build it back up. And that's when people start going, nah, I don't like my boss. They don't know why. They just say, I don't like my boss. And then they start looking. One of the things I ask people to do in vulnerability trust exercises is to really get to know each other on your team on a personal basis. And getting to know, you know, things about them from the personal lives, from their childhood, what they've learned from that. And the more we know about each other, the more we understand how they process, how they make decisions. And guess what? If I know how you make a decision, I might come to you and present that decision from a communications point, uh, something to you a little differently than if I don't. And I'm not trying to manipulate you. I'm just coming at you, giving you what you really like to have to help make you help you make that decision. Interesting. So those two types of trust um, are essential to the relationships between a team member and a manager. Also, I would guess among the members of the team. Is that also oh, abso- true? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there, I call it the foundation. That That is the foundation. Trust is the foundation for everything. It's that core of the foundation of every team, of every leader, of every relationship. So in, in discussing that foundation, uh, we, we often hear the term team building. Team building is an exercise or as a method or a, a something that happens along the way. What, what is it really and how can it be done to pave the way for success? Team building is not an event. It is an ongoing process with every team. I like to say that, you know, becoming an effective team is not hard. It just is time consuming and ongoing. And if you're not practicing it on a regular basis, there's going to be chinks in the armor, if you will. So uh, it's not something that you can say, let's do a team building. That'll help for a short while. But you really need to have a team building program so that if something is structured and going, that's what the great teams do. I remember my old mentor, Zig Ziglar, used to talk about goals. And he said just having a goal is not part of what's going to be, lead you to success. What leads you to success is having a goals program. Well, the same thing about becoming an effective team, there has to be a team building or an ongoing program that you're going to do. Now, does that mean you need to bring a trainer in every month? Absolutely not. But you should be doing things, something on a regular basis. Team feedback, as we know, goes in both directions, from a leader to a a, a member of the team and uh, from the members of the team to the team leader, hopefully they've, they've built up a relationship so that they can honestly talk to each other. What are some types of positive and negative feedback, and, and what are good ways to gather that feedback? we got to give feedback. We've got to tell people they've done a good job. 
There's no doubt about that. Now, the challenge is on the type of a leader. If you're the type of a leader who is more of an authoritative or an autocratic leader, you will give feedback when somebody does something right or wrong, period. Mm, very, very black and white issue. A more participative leader will recognize participation, recognize and tell people what they're doing, praise them. And then when there's challenges, they're just not going to say, you messed up. They're going to give feedback about how to get better. And that's the key thing. There's the old adage of you can do it like the burger technique when you're giving feedback. Start with something positive, give them the meat in the middle that's where they may be struggling, and then give them something positive on the end. Those are all great analogies and examples, and they do work. You've just got to make sure that we do not just recognize people when they make a mistake. We need to praise people when they go above and beyond. Let them know that. And then there's all kinds of little things that you can do for people to praising them, the motivation things. You can simply take a sticky note when they're at lunch and say, hey, Roy, thanks for doing a great job on the project today. I appreciate it. Put it on their computer screen or put it at their desk. Send them an email. Copy the chain of command up. There's so many ways to give feedback in a positive nature that way. Now, let's look at the other side. Whenever there has to be the less than desirable feedback. Somebody's messed up something. Number one rule, and you'd be surprised how often I've seen this rule broken. Number one rule, always, bold-faced, all caps, underline, in red, always in private. Always. If you, if you can't do it in private, it's in a public setting, then hold off and do it a little bit later. Is conflict within a team always a bad thing? Does it sometimes generate good things? What are some positive effects that conflict on a team could have? This is one of my favorite topics because people think immediately conflict is bad. And nothing could be further from the truth. I want you to think about a line of continuum, if you will. If the listeners on here right now just got a sheet of paper, just draw on a sheet of paper a line from left to right. I don't care how long it is. On the far right is no conflict whatsoever. On the far left is insulting comments. The problem is those two extremes are both very bad. I've been on teams before where people sit down in an office meeting, staff meeting, conference meeting, project meeting, whatever it happens to be, and somebody brings up an idea. Everybody goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Nobody voices an opinion. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Sure, right, uh-huh. Nobody voices an opinion in the meeting. What happens when the meeting breaks up and everybody go out in the hallway? Well, he didn't know what he was talking about. They wouldn't bring it up in the meeting, but there's individual little clicks that start to happen. That's brutal to a team. So with no conflict, that's a problem. The other side, I think we already know. If you're calling somebody a moronic idiot, that, that just doesn't work. So find the center of your line. Okay, that, that line that you drew, find the dead center point. We want conflict to be as close to that center line without crossing over to the insulting comment side. That means conflict must be around ideas. 
I don't think that idea will work. Here's why I don't think that idea will work. We've this, expend, this expenditure here requires the ABC team or the infrastructure team or the analysis team that requires them to do more work. I don't think that works in this situation. The other person comes back and says, I've taken that into consideration. If we take it all the way back to this stage, then that works. They're in conflict, but they're around ideas and it will work. Now, here's the key factor. Trust has to happen first. If there's no trust, you will never have this kind of conflict. Then, once you have good conflict and everybody feels that they have been heard, the key word is there, they feel they have been heard. Then when a decision is made, whoever's idea or whatever did not feel, felt like they had a different idea, if they felt their idea was at least heard, they will get on board. Roy, and if you and I were in a conflict situation about doing a project on something, and I felt like it was heard, and the rest of the team then voted and said, we're going to do it this way, and it's not the way that I recommended originally, but it was the way you recommended. You feel pretty good about yourself. I'm bummed because I still think my way might be better. Yet, as long as I feel like my theories and thoughts were heard, I will get on board with it. So the conflict has to happen before you can gain true commitment on that team. Now, here's what's interesting. If the conflict does not occur, or if I feel that my voice was not heard, I may feign commitment by saying, sure, I'm on board, and then not be. And the project struggles. Whatever the project is, it begins to struggle. You've got to have it. Trust, conflict, commitment. Those three are just, they build on top of each other all the way through. So one of the things that's happening within organizations today, at least in in the IT service management, DevOps uh, world, it seems that more organizations are realizing that dynamic teams, teams that come together for a specific project or initiative, might be more effective than a static hierarchical team that sits in the same place every day and does the same job. Why can teams be so effective? And what consequences does a team approach have for, say, a traditional department manager who's used to having the same staff working with them day after day? I want to preface this by saying teamwork is the single greatest advantage any organization can have in today's competitive workplace. It's interesting you say that you've, you see that in ITSM, DevOps, and things of that nature. Quite frankly, the, the project teams, the dynamic teams have been really evolving for probably the last 20 years. It's just nobody's really realized it yet. More and more, we don't have the hierarchical flow of management. People are working on multiple teams, whether I'm reporting to different managers on a regular basis or whether it's a specific project or task, it could be a specific event, I, you know, things of that nature. People are coming together and reporting in so many different directions. I've had some folks that are actually on five different teams at one time. So there's the old adage of the forming, the storming, the norming, and the performing that is that's has been there since Stuckman came up with the concept back in the probably the mid to late 1960s and through the 70s when Deming tried to bring the concept of teamwork. 
Well, the the challenge is we go through the process of form, storm, norm, and perform. Questions uh, coming together and storming and then having problems with each other and fighting and conflict and things of that nature. And then we also tie that into norming and we agree to disagree and then we start to perform. Well, the challenge is with project teams, specifically the project teams or the dynamic teams, what happens is there's a fifth stage that people are failing to recognize today. And that fifth stage is called the adjourning phase. Once the team comes together and you've got a group of people, they need to come together, go through the process, get to performing, and then they need to adjourn. Now, here's where leaders struggle. Let's say that I was brought in and I was the leader of this team. Well, then I have to go back and I pull up another team, but I'm not necessarily the leader. So now I'm gone from a strong leader on team A, but I've got to pull over here and I'm a team member on team B. There, there is that fluidity today that's really changing. And a great leader is one who understands his or her ability to be adaptable to the situations at hand. The old hierarchical methods aren't going to last. They may hold out for a little team here and there. If they try to lead that way, they're going to breach trust. There's not going to be able to work and they start to fall apart, there's going to be low morale on that team. So you've got to go through the four stages that a project team has to understand their disbandment and the adjourning phase so that they can come together on other teams at other times with other groups, and everybody understands their role. If we're putting together a new team, whether for a specific project or long-term, let's say I'm going to build a new team to open a new department or take on a new task that the organization has asked for. What are some of the ways we can make sure that we have the right people on the team? Are there, there maybe some specific traits or qualities that we want to look for in those potential team members? That's just one of the most $64,000 great questions of all time. You know, how do we put together, how do we choose the right people? I mean, let's face it, Major League Baseball, NFL has been trying to do that for years. Realistically, there's a couple of things. I'm sure most of the folks listening have probably at one time or another taken a Myers-Briggs type indicator um, or an, a DISC type of a profile assessment. I love, I love those. I want to be clear that those are not validated for hiring purposes at all. There are certain profiles that are validated for hiring, so make sure you talk to your HR professionals about what might be available. If we're talking about bringing people together on a team, yes, you can look at the behaviors. You can look and see somebody's more dominant or more influential or more steady or conscientious. Quite frankly, that's, that's nice. That's not essential. What is essential are the dimensions that the people may play. Now, there is no direct correlation between a person's team dimension role and a DISC behavior style. There are some indirect correlations, but there are four basic team dimensions. There's a creator, an advancer, there's a refiner, and an executor. And I do not care what your task or project is that you're working on. When you're pulling people together, especially if it's going to be for a, a smaller team task or whatever it happens to be, everything 
from a project standpoint, goes through create, advance, refine, execute. It happens. Creators are those people who just come up with an idea a minute. Advancers are those folks who may not come up with ideas per se, yet when they hear an idea, they have a thought about it because they've done something similar in the past, and they can take that idea and run with it, get the rest of the group excited about it. Then it gets turned over and handed off to the refiner. Now, the refiner really gets a bad rap here. The refiner is someone who finds holes, pokes holes, finds the challenges. The problem is creators, advancers view them as naysayers, Debbie Downers, all those things. They're not. They just get viewed that way. So now you can go back and forth from the refiner to the advancer a few times to the process gets refined and then it can be given to the executor. And I always tease it's the executor, not the executioner. That's key. Let it get out there because now you've got a process and you're going to have something that works. If you don't have a refiner on your team or an executor on your team, lots of ideas, but you're never going to do anything new. If you don't have any creators, you're just going to, and you only have refiners and executors, you're going to be very stagnant on your team. Absolutely vital to make sure in that direction that you've got balance. It doesn't matter on your behavior styles. It matters here, though. Uh, so I think that gives us a little bit of a better idea of how a team becomes that well-oiled machine that we all want to have working. Um, sometimes, however, we encounter one person, and you use the term Debbie Downer, one person on the team who's consistently negative will never agree that anything's going to work. We tried that. It doesn't work. We tried this. It doesn't work. That'll never work here because we don't do things that way. Every idea that's advanced, they just consistently answer in a negative way. If you're a team leader, how do you handle that? What advice would you have for somebody in that position? It's going to vary depending upon each unique situation because there is some differences there. There are those people that wake up in the morning that just say, what can I complain about today? There is that. And there's not much that can be done with that person. Okay. If you go back, uh, Jim Collins wrote a book, I guess it's been 15 years now, called Good to Great. And in the book, he says, first thing you want to do, chapter three, he's talking about getting the right people on the bus, getting them in the right seats. And here's where most people forget. There's another step before you start driving that bus off. Get the wrong ones off. Negative people can have a profound impact on you. I was doing a program in um, Norfolk, Virginia, eight, nine years ago. We started at 8.30 in the morning, and about 8.45, somebody came in a little late. No big deal. People are going to come in late, traffic, whatever. I go to hand the workbook to the young woman walking in. She snatched the book out of my hand. Wow. She sat down in the back of the room. She says, I'm not going to participate, just I'm here. I was told i got to be here. A little later in the day, I had them change seats. She actually got up and moved. I thought I was getting progress there. I put them together in a group. She says, I told you I'm not participating. 
When the program was over that day, I sat and talked with the management team that was in the room, about three or four of the folks. And I said, why is this person here? She says, well, she's our best worker. I said, really? I said, yes. I said, what's your turnover rate like? He said, we're probably, you know, 12, 13%. We'd like to be down at about seven or eight. Why are people leaving? I don't know. They weren't doing exit interviews. I said, do you think the negativity of this person might have something to do with it? So those negative people can have such a pull down on that. What has to happen is, and we get into human resources, so I want everybody to make sure they talk to their HR professionals about this and get individual ways that your organization believes in handling it. It has to be tied back to performance, behaviors, and work of that direction. We can encourage them to get involved, ask them for their help, and then we ask them, why do they come to work? Why is it that they're there? Some people will say, I'm here to get a paycheck. It's all about that. That's key. Find out why they want to do something. Find what it is that motivates them. And you start to build with it from that direction. When people just get a little um, down on things and they've tried things before and they just get frustrated, let's find out why they're getting frustrated. So a leader has to become almost like a little bit of a therapist, if you will, of asking, why is this the challenge? And everybody will have some kind of a different response on that one. That's why I say there's, there is no carte blanche answer to it. I always ask leaders in my workshop, by the way, write down the name of the best boss you've ever had and write down three bullet points as to why. And every, they never talk about they got the reports done, they got time cards done, or managed the project. Everything's about integrity, encouragement, leading, stood up for me, had my back. That's the strengths in what people do. Then I tell them to go call that leader and tell them that you just told them they were the best boss. And that makes everybody feel so much better. And that's the strength of literally paying it forward, paying it backwards, and carrying it on. Greg, thanks for sharing some time today for the podcast. And I look forward to speaking with you soon, sir. Absolutely. I love it. Glad to help out. And anybody's always welcome to reach out. I love to talk to people about this, as you can tell. Thanks, Greg. Thanks again to Greg Gregory for joining us for this episode of SpockCast. SpockCast is brought to you by HDI on the web at thinkhdi.com. I'm your host, Roy Atkinson, and I'll see you again next time on SpockCast.